This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. introduce um, a guest. His name is Bill Eddy. Let me tell you a little bit about Bill. So Bill is the co-founder and training director of the High Conflict Institute and is senior family mediator at the National Conflict Resolution Center. He is also a lawyer and licensed clinical social worker and currently serves on the part-time faculty of the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution at the Pepperdine University School of Law. He is the author or co-author of 14 books and has a popular blog on the Psychology Today website with over 2 million views. I'm really excited to have you on. Thanks for being here, Bill. Thank you so much, Jackie. I'm glad to be on. Yeah. So I wanted to, I reached out after I finished your latest book, uh, Why We Elect Narcissists and Sociopaths. And you state in the book that a free and independent press is essential to democracy and also to limiting the power of high conflict personalities. And this month in July on the podcast, I'm, I'm looking at politics, not to intensify the divide or the conflict that we're seeing currently, but to maybe help us, uh, listeners and the audience kind of understand what's going on and maybe better be prepared. So tell us a little bit about what brought you into this field? Well, I, I really started out as a social worker and became a licensed clinical social worker and did child and family counseling and learned about high conflict personalities, personality disorders, etc. And what I realized is a lot of cases I was dealing with that you would solve a problem and then there'd be a new problem. Mm-hmm. And that people with personality disorders, that it's not the issue, really, it's how they approach issues. And I worked in psychiatric hospitals with people like that, outpatient clinics. But I really liked conflict resolution and decided to go to law school and became a family lawyer and also did mediation. And so I'd go to court in the morning, in the afternoon, I'd mediate the exact same issues, parenting plans, child support, property, all of that. And what I started realizing is the people that were in court seemed to have mental health issues, like I'd worked with before, including personality disorders or traits of those disorders, and that no one realized it. Judges, lawyers, the parties themselves, because this is a hidden kind of mental health issue. Mm -hmm. And so I started teaching about that and judges and lawyers asked me to speak at their conferences. And I established High Conflict Institute with a colleague who was dealing with family law cases uh, for the Supreme Court of Arizona. Mm -hmm. And I'm in California and we put our heads together and formed High Conflict Institute and launched that 11 years ago. Well, that gave us more attention And we got asked to speak to people in the workplace and employers, employees are saying, we we have high conflict people here. We don't know what to do. Everything we do backfires. And so we said, there's a different set of skills you need to use and you need to recognize when you're dealing with a high conflict person. Well, soon enough, things in politics started coming to our attention 
And I was asked, can I explain what's happening in the world today? And so I wrote the current book, Why We Elect Narcissists and Sociopaths, and How We Can Stop, mm -hmm. to really help people see these patterns that I see every day, but see them as leaders. And it's not just politics, it's business leaders as well. We're seeing more and more of today have these high conflict personalities. So that's what got me here. Yeah. So talk a little bit. Did you come up with the term high conflict personality? Well, yes and no. When I became a family lawyer in 1993, I, I was exposed to the concept of high conflict families that are stuck in court. Mm -hmm. And there were books that mentioned kind of high conflict families. And I said, well, this isn't the whole family that's high conflict. It's often one person. And so I said, we need to talk about personalities more than high conflict families because personalities, a person with a high conflict personality, we have to handle in a certain way. And the other person, we need to not pretend that they have a high conflict personality mm -hmm. too. It's like not every alcoholic is married to an alcoholic. Sometimes there's the codependent that's married to the mm -hmm. alcoholic. And that's often what we see in high conflict families is codependent type of behavior. So I started using that term, which I think had been mentioned very briefly by other people, but I made it a focus of attention. And so really with my books, I focused on high conflict personality, high conflict people, and HCP. That's mm -hmm. mine as initials. So if okay. you see HCP, I started that. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk specifics, like how do you define a high conflict personality person? Really four key aspects. One is preoccupied with blaming other people. And that's why it's conflict because they don't change themselves. They don't look at themselves. They say it's all your fault. And so they may focus on one person like a boss or a, a spouse, or they may focus on several people. And that's what we see in politics is there's whole bunches of people that get blamed for everything. And the high conflict person doesn't take responsibility. That's way to notice them. Second is a lot of all or nothing thinking and solutions that because they see things in all or nothing terms, they think solutions are all or nothing terms. You know, if you just disappear, everything will be fine. And I've had so many divorce cases like that, high conflict. I've had high conflict workplace cases. If we just get rid of this person, everything will be fine. But the person saying it is the high conflict person, <laughs> you know. And so, and now we're seeing that in politics. The third characteristic is unmanaged emotions, that the emotions kind of take over the person and often lead them down unrelated paths. And so it's hard for them to get things done because they're always defending, always reacting, mm -hmm. always emotional about things. And that's a big characteristic is to see a lot of emotionality. And lastly is extreme behaviors. Is behaviors, I used to say you need to see over a period of time, is there a pattern of high conflict extreme behavior? But I realized two, three years ago that Often we hear about high conflict people doing an extreme behavior. They have excuse for it. I was tired. I was stressed. But they do a behavior, let's say like domestic violence or something, that 90% of people would never do. 
And so, or they, you know, steal things. They, they take things from the company. Well, I'm allowed to because they didn't give me a fair shake or disappear with the kids in a high conflict divorce case. Things that 90% of people don't do, even when they're tired, even when they're stressed. Mm -hmm. So when you see these four characteristics, and I think they're easy to spot, then you know you need to adapt your approach. Yeah, so you also mention uh, throughout the book, I don't even know how many times, but you mention a lot of times that it's about personality, not politics. Yes. And you go into and explain that, you know, in, in the U.S. we basically have two parties, maybe three. And you talk about, like, we've had leaders on both sides yep. um, who would classify as a high conflict person, yeah. as well as in the world. Mm -hmm. Yes. But let's talk about, because uh, you get into this in the book, let's talk about like why there's so many high conflict personalities or HCPs in politics today. Well, it's interesting because first of all, politics is one area that anyone can get into without any experience or skills. And so, you know, if you want to be a CEO of a company, you're going to have to have some skills. You're going to have to be able to demonstrate this. You've got a history of that. People check you out. They want to interview you, compare you to other people, all of that. High conflict people like to come in from some unrelated place and say, hey, I'm wonderful. And you're in a terrible situation. And so you need wonderful me to be your hero. And so people go, oh, my goodness, we're in a terrible situation. We need a hero. And they don't look at, do you have leadership skills? Do you have the ability to make compromises when you have to? Because all politicians, our Constitution is based on compromises, tons of them. And so you need to have all these skills. You need to be able to work with other people. What's your history of that? But people come in as the hero leader and kind of brush all that aside and talk endlessly. And one thing I've found all the high conflict leaders I looked at in the book, 11 of them, constantly talking many times more than most politicians. And what they're doing- I think doing, in the book you mentioned five to 10 times more than the average politician. Yes, yes. And so with talking, they distract people, they make it harder to focus, they change issues every day. And the only thing that's constant is you get used to their voice and whatever they think. And so they condition the people to their way of thinking. And they basically persuade enough people to make them the hero leader without thinking. It's all emotional. It's all about relationship and, and how it feels. And one of the things that you'll notice with this is the high conflict leaders, people talk about being in love with them. People are infatuated. It's an emotionally based relationship because there's no logic to it. Why would you pick someone with no skills who likes to start conflicts, who thinks they're really the best person in the world? And why would you pick someone like that if you were thinking logic? Like, People don't do that. Like CEO, choosing a CEO, you don't do that. The high conflict CEOs you see today started their own company and bossed people around and never went through an interview to be in charge. 
And then eventually they crash their company or get thrown out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. So maybe let's talk about if you could summarize. I, I want readers to buy your book. I want them to read because you go into quite a yeah. bit of depth. But let's talk about some, some of the 11 leaders that you go into in the book and how they were able to do that. Yeah. And it's important for me to say cautionary words about this, because as I've said, the leaders are on the left or the right, and they're usually the far left or the far right because of the all or nothing thinking. And so I looked at, I started with Hitler, and people say, well, you can't compare today's leaders to Hitler. In many ways, you can't, but the pattern of seducing their followers is so similar for all 11. Mm -hmm. So we have Hitler. We have Stalin, Hitler on the right, Stalin on the far left. People fell in love with Hitler. I include there in the book how people became infatuated with him. They couldn't take their eyes off of him. They loved hearing him. People go, how could this happen? It happened emotionally because Hitler was the first to use electronic media to reach millions of people with emotional repetition. And that's the core of this, is emotional repetition. That's like I said, they talk a lot. And if you talk a lot and you can reach millions of people with the same message over and over and over again, it hits our brain. And really, we remember it. Our right amygdala remembers it because that watches out for tone of voice and facial expressions. All these speakers are very dramatic tone of voice, facial expression. So I looked at Hitler. I looked at Stalin. Same thing. People were in love with him. He had 25,000 young revolutionaries that went into the countryside to force people off the farms, to collectivize the farms. And these young revolutionaries felt they were saving the world by doing this, that this would be good for the people. Then Mao Zedong who was incredible in how he took power. And he actually was elected to be on the, the, the leading committee, but he wasn't elected to be in charge. People don't know, but in, in communist China was really, the communist party was started by Stalin and the Russian communist party. And so he sent someone to Russia telling them, I've been elected in charge. And so in Russia, they said, okay, from now on, you're Chairman Mao. Mm -hmm. But nobody in China elected him Chairman Mao. And he comes back and tells everybody, because there wasn't Twitter and even the radio to send things quickly, that I'm in charge. And he became in charge for decades. Mm -hmm. Then I look at the U.S. So we had McCarthy. And McCarthy was the first to use television in that emotionally repetitive way. And so, again, electronic media that can go viral, that can spread widely, is the reason that we're dealing with this today and why you're seeing this for the first time in the last hundred years. Now, people say, you know, Hitler and Stalin, Mao, they were exceptions. They're done and over with. That was 60 years ago. What's frightening is the pattern as a research now, like the last 10 years or so. So if you look at media and electronic media, you have McCarthy. Then we had Nixon, who basically, you know, had targets of blame, people he pointed the finger at, very repetitive, constantly giving speeches. 
and lying. And by the way, all of these people lie a tremendous amount. Hitler, Stalin, Mao lied a lot. McCarthy was a huge liar. Before he decided to make communists in the government an issue, he was in trouble with his taxes, and he had a reputation for lying. And so things were catching up with him, and he told his friends, I need a distracting issue. Mm. Decided communism and and communists, and it worked for four years, and then they chased him out um, because it was absurd. People caught on. Nixon, you know, people know that history, that's recent. But I looked at Putin in Russia, and Putin was actually losing, I think it was in 2012. He didn't, you know, he was like 34% in the ratings, something like that. But six months later, he won by flooding the media, which he controlled like 90% of the media. He or his friends owned all this media. And so emotional repetition in isolation, that's the key. As you control the media, you get your message out so much. And who did he blame? He blamed Hillary Clinton. He blamed Ambassador McFaul, who had come recently to Russia, said that he was a pedophile because he said, Putin said pedophiles in politics are the big problem here. And so everyone was afraid to be called a pedophile. Used to be they're afraid they'd be called a communist. Now they're afraid they'd be called a pedophile. No basis for that whatsoever. George Soros, who's a favorite in Europe as a target of blame. He's this like 86-year-old guy, Holocaust survivor, etc. He's a billionaire, but he's, he's not in charge of anything much. And yet they make him a target. So all of these, uh, Duterte in Venezuela, Maduro in Venezuela, Duterte in the Philippines. Uh, Berlusconi took this approach, controlled 90% of the TV in Italy, got himself elected, then he crashed and burned about eight or 10 years later. And so we see all of these. It's a combination of high conflict personality and high emotion media. And that's what's changed today. And that's why we see this today. And until people catch on to that pattern, they're going to go, oh, we're, we're having terrible crises, and these people are heroes. Let's give them all the power, and they'll fix it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a TV show. Mm-hmm. It's not real. And often the fantasy hero is also creating the fantasy crisis. Yes, yeah, so they do create real crises, but they start with something that's not a crisis mm-hmm. and say, like, those people over there are evil, you know, and so you've got to vote for me, and then I'll get rid of those people. Mm -hmm. Or did that with Jews. Stalin did that with peasants who were more middle-class peasants. He called them kulaks and taught everybody, hate kulaks, kill kulaks. Uh, Mao had counter-revolutionaries. Like I said, Putin had pedophiles. Also, when Putin consciously chose to really work at becoming a dictator, he also attacked gay people. And In the 1990s with Yeltsin, after they kind of knocked down the Iron Curtain and and got rid of the USSR, there was a growth of support for gay people. And just like around the world, it's like, hey, gay people are okay. Around 2000, Putin comes in. I think two, three, four years later, he decides propaganda of homosexuality is a great evil we have to stamp out. And so they fired school teachers, they fired artists, they 
they kicked people out um, based on that. And he now, you know, he's made being gay a terrible, terrible thing because all of these folks have a target of blame. They have a fantasy villain. So anyway. <laughs> yeah, you, you talked about in the book, I think I have the quote somewhere, but you talk about kind of this adversarial approach that often is an yeah. outcome of this. And, and you talked about kind of how that happened in the United States post the Berlin Wall, was it? the Berlin? Yeah. Wall? yeah. And uh, will you talk a little bit about that? About which part? The um, yeah, when my you mind talking, got running ahead. <laughs> sorry, when you were talking about how, like during the Cold War and other times like that, where the United States had a common enemy. Yes. And what happened after the Cold War ended? Right, right. So we're really now we're talking 1990s because mm -hmm. it was eight, 1989. The Berlin Wall fell around 1990. USSR basically dissolved. And so this really threatening evil villain, and, and there was some truth to that. They were a, a threat to us, and it united the country. That threat went away. We no longer had a unifying threat. And what happened is people started picking on each other in the United States. And politically, right around that same time, there was something called the Fairness Doctrine, which got eliminated. And people may not remember what that was, but the Fairness Doctrine was a law came back in early 1900s that if you get a license from the federal government for a radio or TV station, you have to have both sides if you talk about a political issue or a politician. You have to give someone a chance to answer what you say. So you get both points of view. If you have a federal license, radio, TV. Well, that ended around 1990. And by 1996, we start having cable TV stations, all news. So we had Fox News, we had MSNBC. They both started in 1996. And they were able to just talk about one point of view. Now, we'd already started seeing that in some talk radio. But the other thing is there's an explosion of 24-7 news and made possible by mostly these cable TV companies. And so they needed something to talk about. And so they started talking and talking, making things personal. C-SPAN started showing uh, congressional hearings and debates and stuff like that. Well, that could put people to sleep until somebody discovered, hey, I can talk to the public and totally trash everybody and get away with it, and that'll be exciting. Mm -hmm. And so you start seeing in the 1990s, politicians attaching emotional names to people. So you talk about, you know, the left-wing nut jobs and the this and the that, and those start becoming welfare queens, and those start becoming part of the culture. And so really now for 30 years, we've had a lot of emotional one-sided views coming through our media. And the problem, I think, I, I really think we should bring back the fairness doctrine. Mm -hmm. Because if you just watch one TV station or listen to one radio station and just get one point of view, you start thinking that's the whole world. And that's where our polarization comes from. I really don't believe that we are truly as polarized as the media says every day. 
I have friends, relatives from different political points of view. We get along. But by hearing repetition, some people absorb one side so strongly they start hating the other side. And it's totally emotional repetition in isolation. And until people realize, wait a minute, I got to shut that off. That's going to mess with my brain. People absorb that. And if you get HCPs who naturally are all or nothing thinkings, you have HCPs feeding the one-sidedness, uh, you end up having a civil war. And it's, you know, if people were to look, and I don't talk about this in the book, but if people were to look at Rwanda, which in the 1990s, terrible civil war, hundreds of thousands of people killed, that the talk radio before that happened, built up over about five years against the two groups, the, the Tutsis and the Hutus. Um, if you look at, at Yugoslavia after that, the Soviet Union broke up in the 1990s. You've got terrible civil war there. And hate radio really fed that for five years before it broke out into war. My big concern isn't that people hate each other here that they know. It's that they hate each other that they don't know from just listening to one point of view. Yeah, I, I think you bring up an interesting point because if we know these people, I think it's harder to vilify them or to just cast them into a large category because we have a relationship with them. And so we have to like think more critically about how we feel about this person. Absolutely. And I think that's the key to overcoming this. Let's say there was, there was a unifying leadership and they said, okay, we need to kind of get over some of this polarization. So what we're going to do is offer up uh, group meetings. You know, let's say we get a dozen people together. Six will be on one side, six will be on the other side. Get them together, have a chat, have lunch together, you know, take turns, hear your points of view. Like that, you'll solve polarization. And people have seen that where they've done that. For a while, they were doing that with Israel and Palestinians. Mm -hmm. They were getting like high school kids together, summer camp together. They became really good friends. They stopped all of that after, you know, problems broke out again with the adults. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. kids are good at figuring this stuff out. Adults have a hard time sometimes getting along. And I've seen that in uh, family law cases where we have a high conflict couple and the children say, well, I hate my dad now and I love my mom. She does everything right. He does everything wrong. And so I'm not going to see my dad. And so you get a child that just builds this up while they're not seeing the other person. And then let's say you get court orders, you get good counseling and the kind of, you know, child's going to be with dad and, and we're just going to go through with that. And within a couple of days, they get along fine. Mm -hmm. because the personal is so different from the fantasy. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're facing today. We have too many fantasies going and, and we're not in touch enough with the realities. We're kind of mixing entertainment with government and politics now has become more about entertainment and government. Mm -hmm. You talk about also how high conflict personality people don't change. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Because I've worked with people with personality disorders uh, for many years, some change, be even though it's hard. 
And so they go for counseling because the problem is people with personality disorders don't see themselves as having a problem. Mm -hmm. So the high conflict people and high conflict people tend to have traits of personality disorders. The difference is high conflict people have targets of blame and a lot of people with personality disorders don't. They don't blame one particular person. They just think life is difficult or, you know, there's problems, but they don't focus on somebody. So high conflict people tend to have traits or actual personality disorders, which means it's going to be very hard for them to change, but they have no interest in changing. And what's interesting to see in leadership is that people who aren't high conflict people and don't have personality disorders, they run for office, they lose, they kind of make changes, go through some personal growth, run for office again, and they win. I've seen people who I think have personality disorders run for office and lose, run for office again, lose even more. They don't change anything. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of see the difference. One thing that's interesting to me, I mentioned in passing in the book that George Wallace was a high conflict person and that he had quite a following in the 1960s. And apparently, 10, 20 years later, um, as he got older, he really rejected the politics of hatred that he had promoted. He, he was very much uh, racial, you know, races shouldn't be together and all of that. And he really changed on that. And it makes me think, okay, he was a high conflict person, but maybe he was able to change. He reflected. And that's the key. If people say, what's my part in this problem? they're not going to be a high conflict person. Mm -hmm. It's the people that 100% blame other people, and they're not going to change because they don't think they need to. Do you know why George Wallace had that enlightenment or change? Well, what I've heard, and this is, you know, third hand and such, I heard his, his um, I think it was his granddaughter speak at a conference once, and she said he really changed his views. And I think a couple things happened. First of all, unfortunately, he was shot. Someone uh, shot him during his election campaign, and so we ended up in a wheelchair. But I think he also, and, and, and I essentially, I think, dropped out of politics sooner or later after that. But I think it was from knowing some, some black people that he really realized, wait a minute, you know, there's no basis for what I was saying and believing back mm -hmm. then. And so I think a lot of it was personal experience. And his granddaughter is very much a, a, a person talking about how we need to get along. I, I saw her speak at a conference on conflict resolution, mm -hmm. and she's totally for that. You know, we need to get yeah. along with everybody, and we can. Yeah. And so before he died, he really, I think, apologized for some of his views uh, 30 years earlier. Yeah, I like those stories of redemption. They don't happen very often. But let's talk for a minute about why maybe a high conflict person would want to go into politics or what's the draw? Like, Well, this is where we get into looking at narcissists and sociopaths. Because most narcissists aren't interested in the hassles of trying to run a government. But some are. 
They want to be superior. That's the theme for narcissists, is being superior to other people. And if you're in politics and in a position of power, a mayor, a governor, a president, then people are going to admire you because you're superior to everybody else. And that's what they feel inside. They feel driven in many ways to, to be as superior as they can be. And politics is where you kind of get to rule over other people. Mm-hmm. And so there's attraction for narcissists. That narcissists really want to be admired. They have fantasies of unlimited power. And many just want to be powerful in their work group or their neighborhood. The ones that really go for big politics, like mayor, governor, senators, presidents, um, have probably from a very early age had a drive to be kind of the biggest person on the planet. And all the people I studied had that from an early age. Mm -hmm. And their personalities didn't really change from childhood. They were always driven to be superior. And by the way, they generally tended to be bullies in childhood. And also another side comment, by and large, they weren't abused children. People go, what was the terrible abuse that made them have to abuse other people? Generally, they weren't abused children. They had some conflicts, but they often were, were the opposite. They were indulged as children. Mm. Um, so like, Putin, I think, was like his parents had two sons before him that both died. And so, boy, did they pour everything into him. He was their special kid because, you know, we don't want to lose him. Mm -hmm. And so things like that. So they they grew up really a sense of entitlement, which is part of the limits, maybe with and without limits. Yes. And so they were used to getting their way used to pushing other people around and not having consequences for that. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the narcissistic side. And I mentioned in the book, you know, I don't diagnose people. Mm -hmm. And what I say is they may have some traits and traits of a personality disorder is not a diagnosis. You either have a disorder or you don't have a diagnosis. I can say they have a high conflict personality because that's a conflict pattern. That's not a diagnosis. So since I'm a therapist, there's things I can't say and I can't diagnose people I haven't met. But I can say that person's got the high conflict personality pattern. They have some traits of narcissism, like, you know, drive to be superior, drive for admiration, grandiose ideas. And that's big in politics. The bigger the idea, the more you might get a following. It also collects people in business. Business leaders get that. Mm -hmm. And drive to be superior, unlimited power, and lack of empathy. And that shocks people. They don't realize, how can somebody lack empathy? How can they destroy, like, the person standing next to them who they really seduced with, you know, Mm -hmm. gifts or promises, whatever? But that's what narcissists do. They butter you up, and then they knock you down. Now, sociopaths, a little more complicated, and that's a stronger term. But we do see that in in these politics, and high-conflict politicians often have sociopathic traits as well. People aren't as familiar with this, but basically sociopaths want to dominate people. They like controlling people, pushing them around, maybe killing people, maybe not killing them, 
but holding them hostage or showing, you know, I can take you from here and put you over there. Mm -hmm. I can destroy your career without breaking a sweat, things like that. So dominance. They also deceitfulness, so lying and conning. When people think of a pathological liar, you're really generally seeing a sociopath because other people don't do that. Even narcissists, the, the DSM, the, the, the mental health manual, yeah, the DSM-5 says one difference between narcissists and sociopaths is that narcissists aren't driven to lie that much, that they're not as aggressive. And so these are characteristics more of a sociopath. So chronic lying, conning, pretending to be somebody else, pulling the wool over people's eyes, making them promises they never intend to fulfill. And it's ironic because they do a lot of conflict resolution. When there's a sociopath involved, you catch them at something, say, oh, okay, you know, and you say, well, from now on, you need to do such and such. And they kind of go, okay, I get it. They never do it. It's mm -hmm. a total lie. It's the next lie. They may switch. They may switch sides for a moment. And then they lie about it and scoot by. Also, they're highly aggressive. And that's something that surprises people. They're highly aggressive risk takers. And they'll do things that other people think, my goodness, you're going to get caught. Why are you doing that? And they'll take these risks, and sometimes they don't get caught, and they get away with it. And so people, people are surprised mm -hmm. at that, how aggressive they are. And lastly, that they lack remorse. And so they're willing to totally lie to you, hurt you, destroy you, your career, take your money, whatever it is, and feel okay about it. And the leaders... All of these leaders like to move people around. So you saw like Hitler put people in concentration camps. He separated parents from their children. Stalin, he wanted to move people off their farms. And so he tried to seduce them into that. And if they wouldn't go, then they'd get thrown out. The police would throw them out, separating people from their communities Mao may have been the most cruel of them all. He didn't mind. You know, if we lose 30 million people, that's okay with me. At some point, he told people that. He's like, you know, doesn't matter. And nowadays, we see that uh, the immigration issue worldwide, that the HCPs that are in charge are, in many ways, the most skilled at demonizing immigrants and putting up fences, maybe walls, uh, pushing people around, separating parents and children, all of that. You know, people feel bad about that if you have empathy, if you have remorse. If you don't, it's a piece of cake. It's like, hey, I decided it, do it. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's part of, once you know these patterns, then you see them playing out. You go, oh, okay, that's an HCP with narcissistic and sociopathic traits. Not a good person to put in charge yeah. of your neighborhood, your company, or the world. Mm -hmm. So I, I do want to get into that, how we maybe as the average people can recognize the patterns. Before we go there, you do, I do want to get to uh, like two cautionary or two cautions that you give in the book. First, um, about labeling, like if, if this is sounding familiar, you issue a caution about not labeling people you know. Yes. 
So it's kind of a, a key thing. In all my books before this one, I told people, if you think somebody has a high conflict personality or narcissistic, sociopathic, borderline, histrionic, paranoid, all can be high conflict personalities sometimes, don't tell them. It will just make things worse. It'll trigger defensiveness. If they have a high conflict personality, you'll be a new target of blame mm. unless you already are. And a lot of times I see like lawyers, therapists, mediators, judges say, well, you have a high conflict personality to motivate people to be cooperative, but it has the opposite effect. Mm -hmm. And you don't know. You know, I tell people, you know, you don't know. Have a private working theory, but don't tell them. In the workplace, don't tell them. The distinction I make in this book is if you're electing someone to be, to have power over your life, then you can talk about high conflict personality. You can't diagnose them, but you can say, I think this person has a high conflict personality that has this pattern of behavior, blaming all or nothing emotions and uh, extreme behaviors, and we should not elect this person. And that's the case I think we do need to talk about it. And that's why I'm talking about it in this book, mm -hmm. is to help people see, because it's not about one person. This is going to keep happening. After I wrote the book, Bolsonaro was elected in Brazil. He fits the high conflict personality pattern. People say, oh, my goodness, he, he wants to overrule the legislature and judiciary. And I say, this is a perfect example. He's on the right. Maduro's on the left in Venezuela, and he got rid of the legislature and judiciary. Mm -hmm. He changed his constitution. It's the same personality, just opposite the political pole. Right. So that's why people need to learn about this. So that's the distinction. It's okay to say that's a high conflict personality mm -hmm. if someone's trying to have uh, be elected to power over your life. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and to what you just spoke to, the other cautionary tale that you give is if politically a country or a city or whatever has been to one extreme with a high conflict personality, you caution about swinging to the other extreme with the next leader. Could, could. And I think a good example of that is in Russia. So you had Stalin who was on the, the far left and uh, he died in 1953, I believe it was, but you still had a communist government until like 1990. Then you had a a decade of democracy, and then Putin took it to the far right. Mm -hmm. Same people are used to, oh, okay, we're used to following a leader. I guess that's who we'll follow now. And I think in South America, you've seen swings, far left, far right. And it doesn't mean that the values that are conservative or values that are liberal are bad. Mm -hmm. It's like, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't write any books before the present time because mostly people in government weren't like this. Mm -hmm. And when it's about politics, that's a separate issue from personalities. But what people need to know is high conflict personalities pick the politics that they think will give them the most power. And sometimes they switch sides. Like Stalin was good at that. He would switch sides to get rid of his opponents. And then he'd switch to the other and get rid of the opponents on that side. So he was totally in control. And not only did he get rid of people, fire people, whatever? He killed them. Mm. And so he was, you know, didn't matter. Um, Pol Pot, I didn't mention him in Cambodia. He destroyed the people around him. All of these leaders 
get rid of the people around them. Fortunately, today with Putin and in Europe and the U.S., you're seeing leaders get pushed out of office. Um, but historically, it was much more violent. What I'm hoping, even though the pattern of seduction is the same, I'm hoping it doesn't lead to the level of violence it did historically. <laughs> But I don't see a reason that that couldn't happen. That's why I want to educate people. Don't, right. don't get even close to that. Because I think that's one of the things I want to focus on here before we wrap up is I think for the average voter, right, or the average citizen, because there's plenty who don't vote, just want to set it aside and not have to deal with it. Or they feel like they're being told what to think instead of maybe sharpening their how to think skills and recognize patterns and know what to do about that. So one question I have to start off with, and then let's talk about like what we can do. In your research uh, with all these other leaders, I mean, granted, they were killing people and getting rid of them, but for those who weren't doing that, when that regime or when that government fell, did the average people see what it was? Did they see it for what it was? Were they convinced? Maybe did they they had the ability to say I was wrong? I would say probably the majority of people, yes. There are a minority of people that couldn't. Mm. And I think, I mean, the, the biggest kind of research on that would be looking at um, Germany, looking at Hitler's Germany, is he, he was so anti-Jewish, far more than they had been before. There was anti-Semitism, but he escalated it to a terrible scale. There were people after the war who still held those beliefs and people that didn't. And what's interesting is it was really in many ways the next generation that really publicly spoke out, you know, we have to talk about this, we have to change our thinking, all of that. So I think sometimes it takes another generation, but a lot of people go, okay, that was bad news. They were in the army, but they weren't necessarily in the Nazi party, things mm. like that. Mm. What's interesting is reading about Stalin is, I think I said there was those 25,000 young revolutionaries that went to the countryside to collectivize the farms. And it was touching to read. One of them, like 10 years later, wrote a memoir and said, we blinded ourselves. We really, we told ourselves we weren't seeing what we were seeing. Because what they did caused tremendous famine. Five million people died from famines that they helped cause. It was nothing else but pushing people off the land, taking their grain, and they didn't have anything to eat. And seeing what they'd done, they, and they described the psychological process of persuading yourself, this is okay, this is okay, now this is okay. So some people look back and realize that was terrible, what we did. Um, but some people still believe, you know, that they were right. Mm -hmm. So I think the majority changed. But the other thing I want to say is these folks rarely got a majority of people to believe in them, that they tended to never have more than like 40 some percent mm -hmm. of people, but they divided everybody else. And they were good at splitting everybody else, especially in elections. And that's something people need to be aware of. Like you said, people say, I don't want to be part of this. Well, that means that you help elect whoever gets elected. Right, right. <laughs> can't not be part of it. Yeah. Right, right. So what do we, how do we, how do we increase awareness 
um, of patterns and being able to spot the behavior? Well, I think education, and that's been my approach, writing the book, explaining it, talking to people, doing podcasts like this with you, is helping people see the patterns much earlier and also really separate it from politics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they say, well, you can't criticize so-and-so. And it's like, I'm, I'm not concerned about their politics. I'm concerned about their personality, very concerned. And their personality usually doesn't have much to do with their politics. It's whatever was convenient. So I think helping people see the HCP pattern. And what's interesting, I find from doing these kinds of interviews is people go and they want to read some of my other books on HCPs, like relationships and workplace and such, because just that concept is new. And I think once people see the pattern, the four parts, blaming others, all or nothing thinking, unmanaged emotion, extreme behaviors, they're going to start seeing it in people around them, not telling them because they heard your show and they know they shouldn't tell them, and also hopefully adapting their approach. Things like, don't get stuck arguing about the past, focus on what to do now. That's one of the biggest things. High conflict people suck you into arguments about the past, and you just don't go there. Mm -hmm. Going into the future, not getting emotional with them and, you know, telling them they're stupid or hating them or whatever, but just matter of fact, you know, I don't agree. I hope, you know, you can see this other viewpoint. So I think educating but I also want to educate about a key thing here, and that's the fantasy crisis triad, mm -hmm. that all of these high-conflict leaders persuade people there's a terrible crisis that isn't a terrible crisis, and that there's an evil villain driving that crisis, and therefore make me your hero. And it's all a fantasy, all three of those. Now, they might create a real crisis in the process, but they identify something that's not a crisis. And what I find is it's most helpful for people to focus on, check things out. Is that really a crisis or are you getting seduced by a high conflict leader? And don't check it out by a single source. Yes, multiple short. In fact, that's a whole chapter in the book uh -huh, uh -huh. is how to deal with fake news. Right. And it's check it out, find out what other people say. What are the numbers? Is this something that's happened 1% of the time or 80% of the time? Um, hear from different sources and discuss it. And don't, don't just absorb and believe. Think before you believe. Right. So you also talk about not getting emotional, not getting dragged into the past. Yeah. What else can we do? I mean, in the book, I will say this for listeners, in the book you gave some really great scripts for people to follow. You also have your um, BIF responses um, that if people can kind of practice that and know that, it yeah. can be not so infuriating to have these conversations. Exactly. And so what I suggest is that the way they talk to people is always respectful. That there's no point at which you start screaming at people, well, you're an idiot, how could you believe that? And I'm saying including in writing. Um, that's the Biff response you mentioned. Brief, informative, friendly, and firm. It's not emotional, it's not judgmental, it's providing information. So if somebody says something like, well, your candidate is stupid and believes such and such. 
that your response shouldn't be, no, you're stupid. <laughs> it should be, for your information, this is what my candidate believes, and give some useful information. In real life, most functioning politicians know they have to balance things. And so if you say they held an extreme viewpoint, find out. They might not hold an extreme viewpoint. They may have a balanced viewpoint on any particular issue. One thing to know is high conflict people are so good at pointing the finger at other people, people start believing what they say. Uh -huh. They don't believe the high conflict person about themselves, but they believe what they say about their fantasy villains. Go, oh, well, she's a this and he's a that, and that's terrible. So when you respond, is provide, res respond brief, informative, friendly, firm information, and always be respectful. And if you can, have empathy for the person. Pay attention. Uh -huh. Ask, you know, here's my concerns. What, what's your point of view? Mm -hmm. And I have those. I travel a lot. And so, like, I often find myself in a taxi or something. And we get into this stuff. And it's not unusual. We may have different opinions. And I say, well, you know, I want to know more what, you know, where you got your thoughts from, what your concerns are. <laughs> and it's 100% respectful both ways. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't think we're as polarized as we're, we're told we are. But we can talk. The way we talk, the way we listen, always needs to be respectful, always be informative rather than argumentative. Yeah. And, and don't add to the emotional intensity. Right. Right. Yeah. I think one of the things, and, and I, this was one of my takeaways from your book, I really thought it was, I mean, I, I loved most of your book. I, I don't know any part that I didn't when I say most, but <laughs> I really took away, I thought there was an interesting concept that you were developing just kind of how, I mean, I'm a therapist. I love understanding how the brain works. Yeah. And when you were talking about, you know, current day media and really moving away from print media yeah. and how that like today's media, watching things, listening to things is different than reading things. It's different parts of the brain. Yeah. And so I think we have to recognize like as average consumers of information that it's been made very convenient or easy for us to consume information. And that's actually not a good way to consume information. You're absolutely right with that. And it's interesting, the trend and why I think the last 10 years we're seeing a resurgence is the shift away from print media, which tends to be more left brain thinking you know, that's where we process words, reading, writing, talking, listening more. And, and a few other things is print media, books, magazines, newspapers. You can pick them up. You can set them down. Um, you can think about, talk about it, go back over it. What we're seeing now today more is the face and voice news. So TV, Facebook on your screen. And so you don't have control over that. It just keeps coming at you. You can't say, wait, back up a minute. Did you say what I thought you said? But you can't do that. And what you thought they said just slips into your brain because you don't have time to process it. Mm -hmm. We also, that tends to be more where fear and such is. This is more kind of right brain uh, sensitivity, face, voice, hand gestures, fear, all of that. And so there's this collect, this fast process. Uh, you see people's attention spans shortening. That's not a good thing for the future of society. 
in getting along with useful information. We need to be able to get a thorough thought. <laughs> yeah, to stick with it and yeah. read the whole article. Yeah, exactly. Rather than clicking to a link and you never finish. Mm -hmm. So I think to me, that's a great tragedy of the loss of newspapers. Newspapers tend to be more fact-oriented. There's articles that you can read. The news you get on TV, uh, what you see on Facebook is fast, fast-edited. tends to be opinion. I would suggest that most of TV news today is gossip. Mm. Do you know what he said about what she did? How do you feel about what he said about what she did? Do you, how do you feel about what she said about what he said about what she did? Mm -hmm. And that, and it grabs your brain. Your brain needs to know, is there danger here? Mm -hmm. There's a conflict. I have to pay attention. It's part of human survival. Yeah. We pay attention to conflict because it could hurt us. But that's manipulated to get you to watch. And if you watch, then people do better. Right. You know, the they make more money. <laughs> yeah. So you also talk about that we need to be as assertive as HCPs are aggressive. Yes. And I, I learned that as a family lawyer. So here's the way that works is someone says aggressive behavior basically tries to win by hurting you, maybe even destroying you. Now I win that work. That's aggressive behavior. Assertive behavior says, well, let me back up. Passive behavior is you're coming at me, I'm not going to defend myself. And aggressive people walk all over passive people. Uh -huh. And assertive is I'm not going to be passive. I'm going to protect myself, defend myself. But I'm not, as a goal, trying to destroy you. And so you can be assertive in response to aggressive behavior. And that's how I learned to be a lawyer. Because I was a social worker before I was a lawyer. Uh-huh. And it made me not hate the other side. Mm -hmm. It made me think, you know, the other side's human too, and I want to see if I can solve problems with them. Mm -hmm. And so they would write me nasty letters, and I would send them Biff response letters. Mm -hmm. You know, here's some information you're lacking. Did you realize? And in court, you know, the other side would stand up and say, and Mr. Eddie's client is lying, and Mr. Eddie's, you know, whatever, and, and might say these nasty things. And then I'd say, Your Honor, for your information, here's the facts of the case. And so I'm not trying to destroy the other side. And I'm proud to say I heard from some of my clients after their high-conflict divorces that the other side wished they had me for their lawyer <laughs> instead of who so they effective. had. Say that again? I said because it's so effective. Yeah. And my clients learned some useful skills mm -hmm. after going through a high-conflict divorce. And often the, quotes other side didn't learn anything and often ended up depressed, frustrated, angry because there was no, there's no real help to move forward in life. It was all about winning. And to me, families can't be, a, no one wins if the other person loses. It's really trying to limit the damage. And being assertive, I found, really was helpful. Mm -hmm. Which is a novel idea in our adversarial society, right? That if somebody wins and somebody loses, nobody really wins. Exactly. 
And what's, what's exciting for me is to see the legal field has moved away from win-lose in a majority of cases now. Something like 2% of civil disputes actually go to trial now. 98% get settled. The courthouse door, doorsteps or in mediation or other agreements. Uh-huh. And, but the news and the media and, and drama too shows all this adversarial stuff because that's what grabs your attention. But it's not the real world. Today's world of entertainment is different from the real world and people are starting to lose track of that. Uh-huh. Well, I wanted to end with a quote that you had in your book, but I want to ask you, do you have anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? Just, I think, these, these key concepts, recognize patterns, don't, give the, don't elect high-conflict people into positions of power. They may be great entertainers, great athletes, great accountants, but not great as leaders. Yeah. So that's the key. Yeah. It's kind of that getting away from thinking, this is my guy, or, I mean, we haven't had a female president, so I'm using yeah. that male, male pronoun, but that's too, like, we're going to have some blind spots. Yeah. And, and to realize that we need to check ourselves and check our information. Uh-huh. And don't, I don't think we should love or hate our politicians. Mm-hmm. I think we should hire them like you would hire an accountant or a plumber or somebody else based on their skills, their experience, mm-hmm. uh, what we need from them. And then assess the job that they do. Yeah. 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 So I really appreciate it. I was so excited when your assistant, I'm not sure who she is, but said that you were willing to come on the show because I read your book and I thought, I want to help spread this message. I want, I'm tired of the divisiveness. It concerns me where we're headed. And I just thought I want to help be part of spreading this message. And so I want to let listeners know that, I mean, we may have done a a surface level of this book. And I think we've (laughs) talked about some great things, but there's so much more in the book that we can't get to in a podcast episode. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really think we do need to have people know about all of this. Yes. So let me end with this quote. You said, the world will always have high conflict personalities and high conflict politicians. They are the greatest threat to humanity if they are not understood and reined in rather than given more power. The more people who understand their patterns and practice the type of methods described in this book, the safer we will all be. I believe that. Thank you. Thank you so much. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. There's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.